0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters.
1: It's amazing that Arvada is this huge city of 120,000 people, yet it still may on steroids. It's really a small town.
0: That is Arvada's mayor, Mark Williams, at a vigil this week after a shooting that left three dead. Still so many lingering questions, we'll try to get them answered and hear how Old Town moves forward. Then think of it as an insufficient funds alert, but for water, Lake Powell is looking low and litigation looms.
2: We really just want to be able to control our own destinies on the Colorado River. And, you know, frankly, putting it in the hands of a judge is not doing that.
0: From our climate team, CPR's Michael Elizabeth Sackis explains. And we pull a rabbit out of a hat. His name's Harvey.
2: The
3: success of Colorado Public Radio relies on support from active members. Members like you are necessary in order for CPR to be your source for in-depth news and music discovery. Our fiscal year ends June 30th. You can help keep this service strong and help keep funding goals on target with your gift today. Help fuel news and music on Colorado Public Radio now and in the year to come at CPR.org.
0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. What exactly happened in Old Town Arvada Monday? We know three people are dead, an officer, a man police describe as a good Samaritan, and the alleged attacker. What is less clear is who shot whom. Notably, who killed the civilian police say was trying to help. We are also curious how Old Town moves forward. This is a neighborhood that was just seeing a light at the end of the pandemic tunnel. Arvada's mayor, Mark Williams, is on the line. Mayor, thanks for being with us.
1: I'm sorry to have to be with you, but i um, happy to do so.
0: Indeed, under these circumstances. Can you tell us who shot 40-year-old bystander Johnny Hurley?
1: You know, unfortunately, at this time, I cannot, and let me explain we certainly have a situation where there's an ongoing investigation. A portion of that investigation is not being conducted by the Arvada Police Department. It's being uh, under the command of what's called the CERT team, the Critical Incident um, Response Team. And then that reports to the Jefferson County First Judicial District, um, District Attorney. They are handling that aspect of the investigation. And we hope to have the results of that very soon. I know that there are reports out there that one of our police officers sadly and unfortunately uh, caused the death of John uh, Hurley, who who obviously was, uh, was a hero in this situation. I cannot confirm or deny that at this point, but please, I'm asking people to wait until all the facts are in that will give a better indication and explanation for how these events happened.
0: The involvement of this CERT team, this critical incident response team, is in and of itself a clue, uh, according to our justice reporter, Allison Sherry, uh, who says that those teams are only activated when a cop injures or kills someone on duty. Can you at least confirm that the officer who is on leave, there is an officer on leave from the Arvada force, can you confirm if that officer is under investigation for shooting Johnny Hurley?
1: I cannot at this time.
0: All right. When do you expect uh, more information to come out? Do you think that'll happen today?
1: There is a potential that there will be more information released today.
0: Would you say a few more words about what you know of the actions of Johnny Hurley? Police have called him a good Samaritan. Police have used the word heroic in relation to his actions. What do you know and what more can you say about that?
1: What I know is what I've seen in media reports and in um, the information that's been in the public atmosphere. It appears and I think it's uh, been verified that indeed uh, Mr. Hurley took out the the, um, the gunman. I think uh, the situation has been described by individuals from the Army-Navy Surplus Store indicate that uh, when the gunman murdered, and I mean murdered, Officer Gordon Beasley by ambushing him with intent to kill an Arvada cop, that Mr. Hurley heard the gunshots, went out of the Army-Navy surplus store and took out the gunman. And in that process, undoubtedly saved lives.
0: So uh, it sounds like you can confirm for us that Johnny Hurley was armed, in other words.
1: He he was, um, as I understand it, had a concealed carry. Well, first of all, had a concealed weapon. I do not know whether or not he had a concealed carry permit, but I do know that he, pulled out a um, pistol and went out of the Army-Navy surplus store and shot. And and as I understand it, killed uh, the gunman.
0: As you have uh, at least alluded to, one possibility at this point is that police responding to the scene shot Mr. Hurley. Uh, Again, you can't confirm whether that is true or not. If that happened... Would the city of Arvada owe something to Hurley's family beyond an apology?
1: That's going to be for down the line. And I'll let the I'll let the, the both the criminal justice and the civil um, part of our court system address those issues. I can certainly indicate that it will be thoroughly investigated. We have excellent people who will give us advice and we will make that decision at the appropriate time. What
0: would your role be in that instance as mayor?
1: Well, certainly one of condolences to the Hurley family and I know that that is going on um, throughout these days, has been going on daily. Um, Certainly my role as one of the seven members of city council will be to oversee Um, the possibility of litigation to oversee any settlement discussions. uh, And we as an entire city council, I'm just one vote of seven uh, in terms of of recommendations that are brought to us for ultimate approval. We'll address that down the road.
0: The fallen officer, Gordon Beasley, was a 19-year veteran of the Arvada Police Department. I know that your paths had crossed. On Facebook, Mayor, you wrote, he was among the best of the best. He was a school resource officer who gave so much to the students he interacted with, a loving father and husband. And you went on to write, he made us laugh at the annual holiday party. Do you remember what made you laugh?
1: You bet I do. Um, officer hurley was a drummer and would be joking up there when and this is an annual gathering that we have for all of our employees and he i I, th- a, I think
0: you mean to say officer beasley
1: i'm sorry I, I apologize officer beasley uh that officer beasley uh was an individual who was a drummer he 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 dressed up uh in appropriate holiday attire uh would be uh impersonating elvis would be cracking jokes um i recall that, uh, they played the Charlie Brown song, you know, the typical Christmas holiday Charlie Brown song, and I jumped on stage in a, in a red sequin suit and a red sequin Santa hat, dancing away while they were playing, and it was just a riotous time.
0: Hmm. Do you have a sense of how many people witnessed this whole thing go down in Old Town, and and I know that many others sheltered in place as the situation was unclear, but. Do you have a sense of how many people sort of were touched by this on Monday?
1: I I have no idea, but I'm sure there were many, um, but I have no definitive number. Hmm.
0: Uh, Have you been in touch directly, Mayor, with either Mr. Hurley's family or with Officer Beasley's family?
1: Have not at this juncture. I'm trying to give some space. Uh, I will be attending Officer Beasley's funeral on Tuesday. Um, and I will, at the appropriate time, and, and if they are comfortable with it, certainly talk to the Hurley family.
0: I want to say that there are two dedicated funds to uh, help um, with those who were killed in this incident. So the Colorado Fallen Hero Foundation is this specific nonprofit to help with Officer Beasley. And Arvada Police tweeted this week that there is a specific GoFundMe that has been um, created for uh, Mr. Hurley and uh, his family, uh, and that those are right now the only sort of officially sanctioned ways of uh, helping those affected uh, I want to go back to last summer, Mayor. Old Town Arvada adapted quickly to the pandemic, closing off streets so people could sit and stroll in the streets, grab a you know bite or a drink. And I'll just say that before the shooting, I was enjoying a meal with a friend at a restaurant there, you know, thinking how charming that spot is. Um, what does this mean for Old Town in just a few moments?
1: Yeah, it's a situation where we did do a great job with the uh, resiliency, our battle resiliency task force, get old town vibrant again with the intent now, based upon what we learned that we were planning on, and we will still plan on keeping um, a couple of the streets in that area closed down long-term and potentially permanently. And, And that's been great. And so the hope I have is that the resiliency we showed, during the pandemic will again be the resiliency that occurs after this tragedy, uh, that people will come together to support the businesses, the restaurants, the merchants, uh, and that our citizens and, and visitors will again come to that area, hmm. as I know they will. Uh, Arvada has always been a very safe community, and this is an aberration without question. It's a horrible, horrible tragedy, but that's not Arvada, and that is take
0: That is Mark Williams. I'm sorry to cut you off, Mayor, and I'm very grateful for your time. He is mayor of Arvada, Colorado, where a shootout Monday afternoon left three dead, including an officer and a bystander whom police are calling a Samaritan. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Paula Williams is transgender and author of As a Woman, our pick for Turn the Page with Colorado Matters. It's a fresh look at the gender gap. She has no idea. How much harder it is for her than it is for the guy in the Brooks Brothers jacket in the office across the hall. I know. I was that guy. Tickets for Wednesday night's event at CPR.org slash Turn the Page. Supported by Wanabo Love Keller Mendenhall Smith Wealth Management Group of Wells Fargo Advisors. It's Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and it's a sign of just how parched the West is. The water levels in Lake Powell are the lowest they've been in decades. This important reservoir is on the Utah-Arizona line, but its status has a lot of implications for Colorado and the Colorado River. From CPR's climate team, Michael Elizabeth Sackis is here to explain. Hi, Michael. Hi, Ryan. And tell us why Lake Powell matters to Colorado.
4: Yeah, it was created as a storage bucket Mm. to help states in the upper Colorado, Colorado River Basin, so that's Colorado, New Mexico, Utah, and Wyoming, deliver enough water to the lower basin. So that's Arizona, California, Nevada, and Mexico. A century ago, these seven states made an agreement called the Colorado River Compact, and it dictates how much water must be sent downstream. And Lake Powell is where that water is released. I I spoke with Amy Ostick with the Colorado Water Conservation Board. She says when those levels are in good shape.
2: It helps us ensure that we can meet our legal obligations in the upper basin. So it gives us the ability to make sure that going forward, we're not risking, frankly, being sued by the lower division states.
0: But Lake Powell is not in good shape. We know levels are low. Just how low?
2: Right now, Lake Powell is
4: just 34 percent full, and the amount of water coming into the reservoir isn't great. It's about 37 percent of what's average for this time of year.
0: Okay, a third and a third, uh, respectively. Why isn't there more water in Lake Powell?
4: There are a lot of different reasons, but drought driven by climate change plays a role. The western U.S., including the western slope of Colorado, is currently in one of the worst droughts on record. But some parts of the southwest have been in a drought for the last 20 years. Scientists call this a megadrought, which are periods of dryness that can last decades. The last megadrought was in the late
0: 1500s. 1500s. Okay. Uh, Climate change no doubt making this current megadrought more mega.
4: Yes. The research shows that global warming accounts for about half of what's happening in the southwest right now. Warmer temperatures throw the water cycle off in a lot of ways. If it's hotter, soils dry out more. And that means when the winter snow that collected in the mountains start to melt and run off, less of it makes it into streams.
0: Oh, because the dry soil absorbs all that runoff.
4: Right, like kind of like a sponge. And those higher temperatures also mean more water evaporates. And that can be a big issue for reservoirs like Lake Powell, where a significant amount of water can be lost through evaporation.
0: It's projected, Michael, that uh, Lake Powell could dip even lower.
4: Indeed. The latest projections show that it's likely the water level will drop below a critical threshold of 3,500 feet by next year. The states agreed a few years ago that if Lake Powell does drop below that number, it could be bad news on two fronts. First, hydroelectric power, because the Glen Canyon Dam, which forms Lake Powell, needs enough water to turn turbines, which creates electricity for some states. And then second, if Powell does go below that 3,500 number, it can make it harder for Colorado and those other upper basin states to send enough water downstream. Amy Ostick of the Water Conservation Board says that can spell trouble.
2: It could potentially lead to seven-state litigation, which we've never seen before on Colorado River, which would create a lot of uncertainty. It would be probably a very long, drawn-out process.
0: Well, what's being done in response?
4: A 2019 drought contingency plan makes the Upper Basin states work with the Federal Bureau of Reclamation to have a plan ready to make to send more water to Lake Powell. Again, that's if that water level goes below that critical threshold. And those meetings are happening. The, oh. the plan to protect Powell could involve releasing water from the upstream reservoirs of Flaming Gorge, Blue Mesa, and Navajo in Utah, Colorado, and New Mexico, respectively. But Austic says the hope is to avoid the need for that plan by keeping Powell above that 3,500 threshold.
2: We really just want to be able to control our own destinies on the Colorado River. And, you know, frankly, putting it in the hands of a judge is not, is not doing that. We don't know what would happen. We don't know what the judge would decide.
0: Well, what happens next?
4: Austic says there's already been some painful water cuts across Colorado because of the prior appropriation system, which is the legal framework that regulates water use in Colorado. Essentially, junior water rights holders are getting shut off, which means those who have acquired water rights more recently are beat out by those who've owned them for longer. austic says that states that the state's southwest corner is a particularly painful spot for shutoffs right now with the ongoing extreme drought conditions. And the Water Conservation Board did send out a press release that acknowledges that the Secretary of the Interior can take emergency action if there is an imminent need to protect Lake Powell from dropping below that 3,500-foot threshold.
0: Thanks so much, Michael. It it really does show how interconnected we are with water in the West.
4: Yes. Thanks, Ryan.
0: CPR climate and environment reporter Michael Elizabeth Sackis on why alarm bells are sounding over water levels at Lake Powell. By the way, sign up for our climate newsletter at CPR.org slash climate weekly. Concerns about water levels in the Colorado River are nothing new. David Owen traveled the river end to end, past farms and dams, power plants, and cities. Then he wrote a book called Where the Water Goes Life and Death Along the Colorado River. Our conversation from 2017 lends more perspective to all that's at stake. What did you expect to see along the river? What I was hoping to see is, is just where the water
5: comes from in the river and where it goes. The Colorado's perfect for that kind of uh, experiment because you know, it's long, it's 1400 miles long, but it's, uh, it's not endless. It's the Mississippi's a thousand miles longer, and every couple of weeks it carries as much water as the Colorado does an entire year. Oh wow. Uh, and yet the Colorado is extraordinarily important to a huge part of the country. Almost 40 million people depend on water from it, six million acres of agriculture. And that irrigated agriculture is on land that was created by the Colorado itself. Arizona and Southern California farming takes place on soil that's, that's pretty much what's missing from the Grand Canyon. The, the river spread it around and, and now we grow stuff on it. And, of
0: course, the Colorado River is not just uh, ours. It's Mexico's as well.
5: Right. There was some, there was some uh, dispute about that. The United States didn't initially think that Mexico necessarily deserved any of the Colorado, even though it flows through. Uh, Mexico. The other interesting thing about the Colorado is that it doesn't get all the way to the end anymore. Uh, Not very far over the Mexican border, it just... it comes to an end. And the reason is that we use it all up. An- another reason that that studying the Colorado is interesting, because you can
0: you can account for pretty much every drop of water that is in it to start with. That's right. And so there's actually a lot of what you call paper water. That is water in theory that people don't actually have access to. I love that term paper water.
5: Yeah. The West is unusual. The the entire legal structure about water is different from what it is in the rest of the country and in the world. And uh, there are more legal claims on water in the Colorado River, the paper water, than there is wet water, which is what you and I think of as water. So there have been some amazingly complex legal battles, uh, including one of the longest Supreme Court cases ever that have to do with disputes between states over
0: who gets what. That's right. One revelation you have along this journey was about palm trees in Los Angeles. This is, I think, where your son lives.
5: Yes, it is. Uh, he lives in L.A., and I'm I'm ashamed of myself for never thinking about this, but it was as I was driving to Los Angeles, uh, sort of at the end of my journey from Mexico, and I realized that, you know, I've always thought that I have friends in L.A., and you make a gin and tonic, you walk out into your yard, and you pluck a lime from your lime tree, and you have these beautiful flowers, and there are palm trees uh, along your driveway, and I realized none of that stuff was there. That's that's all. Those are all the products of irrigation uh, in the early years. LA was a desert. In the early years, they took uh, irrigation water from the Los Angeles River and, and they pumped it from the ground until that went dry. But a lot of that water comes from the Colorado River. So a few years ago, my I have a photograph of my wife and me standing on uh, Independence Pass uh, with the, the snow behind us. And, um, you know, that some of that snow was on its way to Mexico and on its way to Southern California. Uh,
0: And I suppose that there is a knee-jerk reaction people have, which is to say, oh, just pull out the palm trees and, and stop the fountains at the Bellagio and you'll be set. The Colorado will have enough river water. Why isn't it that easy? Well, I think
5: you know we could. Each, anybody can think of the one thing. You know, just stop growing almonds. Or if you live if you live uh, on the west slope, all you have to do is get rid of all the cities on the east slope in Colorado. Just get rid of Denver right. and,
0: and Boulder. I think there's been a lot of attention to growing hay in places that you know eventually get shipped to China.
5: Right. Exactly. The irrigation water that we're shipping actually shipping this water embedded uh, in it. But as with all these things, it always ends up being more complicated than it than it seems when you look at it from the surface. There are people. People who live in uh, Boulder and Denver don't necessarily want to pack up and move someplace else. We do a significant trade in, uh, in agricultural products with other countries and forage, forage crops are some of those. Uh, the, the Bellagio fountains in Las Vegas don't actually use that much water, none of it from the Colorado River. And yet it's a huge source of economic vitality for Las Vegas. So how you feel about that depends on how you feel about the economic
0: vitality of Las Vegas. But but all these issues are complex. Yeah, and a lot of them are about quality of life. You heard from the head of Denver Water that, you know, trees in town are an important part of the quality of life here.
5: Yes, it's true. And if you, if you drive a little ways to the east uh, outside of Denver, you see what Denver would look like without irrigation water. Uh, the grass, the it's not, not just the golf courses, the grass, the trees, the, they all depend on water that has been brought either from underground or from other places. I was remember being in Las Vegas and walking onto the campus of the University of Nevada at Las Vegas, and just stepping off the sidewalk into the quadrangle, which was a, a broad lawn with big trees, The temperature dropped, you know, it was 20 degrees. It felt like a completely different, place. And it was. It was a different uh, microclimate. And if if there were still, you know, sand blowing around in the, the streets of Denver, it wouldn't necessarily feel like the Denver that it
0: feels like today. In Colorado, much of the water that feeds the Front Range comes from west of the Continental Divide. And uh, for Denver, most of it's stored in Dillon Reservoir near Silverthorne, not far from Keystone. Your description of how that reservoir was built about 50 years ago was really vivid. So I wonder if you could just read a bit of that for us.
5: Uh, sure. This is about the tunnel that brings the, the water under the Continental Divine. It's 10 feet in diameter and uh, 23 miles long. Uh, digging it took six years, during which mining crews worked on it continuously, sometimes in 12-hour shifts, and mainly used pickaxes, jackhammers, and dynamite. They dug in four directions at once, from both ends toward the center and from the center toward both ends. The crews working from the center reached their starting point under the town of Montezuma by descending a 1,000-foot vertical shaft, which they had to dig first. That tunnel, incidentally, is, is one of many water-moving pieces of infrastructure in the West that's named after a lawyer because uh, uh, very often the, the key person in a water project was the lawyer who figured out a way to, to pull it off.
0: Who is that lawyer?
5: His name was Harold D. Roberts. He established uh,
0: D- Denver's right to, to that water. Dillon Reservoir is looked at very differently if you live on the west side of the Divide and the east yes. side of the Divide. What does it represent to people who are on the western side of the Rockies? People
5: on the western side view it as theft by uh, by people on the east. Um, the, you Still, people will shake their fists and, and feel angry about it. At the same time, though, those same people depend very heavily on people who live on the east side of the mountains. Uh and would be very unhappy if the people who lived on the east side of the mountains uh, you know packed up and moved to move to the west and said well you know where do you want to where do you want to put us uh, so that we don't have to move our water over the mountains it's uh, like many relationships involving water it's a complicated one if you're in the Grand Valley growing peaches or growing grapes, uh, you depend—you're not so much making your living from what you're growing as you are from the people coming from east of the mountains to, to visit, to ride bikes, to visit the restaurants, to drink wine in your tasting room.
0: Right. That's your customer base in many respects. Yes, exactly. Uh, you touch on a lot of environmental issues. What stands out about water to you as an environmental issue today? The main
5: thing about water is that water is never just about water. It's part of a whole complex of issues that have to do with uh, governance, that have to do with climate, that have to do with uh, urban development. Uh, One of the big challenges is that as we get better at using water... It's what we do with the water that we save. And sometimes if a community becomes, uh, uses less water, as many, many communities have been able to do, if we just take that water and invest it in the construction of new sprawling communities, uh, new subdivisions, we've solved the water problem in one way because we're getting more value from every gallon of water that we use, but we've created a different environmental problem. And there isn't really... It, it, there isn't any really any way for people like for example urban planners and water managers to work together toward handling land use in a way that that makes sense in both directions
0: this is one of the most fascinating things i think in your book which is what you call the the perverse effects or the potentially perverse effects of saving water and you liken it to saving up for a trip so you i don't know you're you're, you're very um uh, conscious about not spending, and and then you have enough money to fly to Vegas, and you wind up spending way more money than you would because you're gambling and you're eating and you're, you're <laughs> sort of uh, living past your means. And so what was the value of saving because you've actually spent more than you have? And that there are parallels to water conservation.
5: There are, and the, very often water that's wasted in, in the view of, you know, say, excess water that's flood irrigated onto an agricultural field. Uh, often that excess water has, uh, has environmental value. Maybe it soaks into the ground and replenishes a, 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 an aquifer that supports a surface stream or in the case of uh, the, the, a canal that carries water from the Colorado River to Southern California, uh, water leaking from that canal supported a, an ecosystem and a, and a farming area in northern Mexico that then had water troubles as when the United States lined part of that canal with concrete and the leaking stopped. Huh. Uh, it, with any efficiency issue, uh, this invo- This is true of energy too, the real impact of Gains in efficiency depends on what you do with what you save, and so the the example that I give in the book had to do with my wife and me when when home heating oil got to be almost five dollars a gallon where I live. My wife and I got very good at turning off lights. I completed insulation projects in our house, which is two hundred years old that I'd been meaning to do for twenty years. Uh, you know, I drove less. I did all these things, and we saved a significant amount of money, which, uh, as you mentioned, we then spent on a trip to Europe. So what we had really done was. Transmute natural gas into jet fuel, and if huh. and if if that's all you do, then you haven't you haven't really advanced. You feel as though you've been busy solving an environmental problem, and you've really just been shifting money from one pocket
0: to the other. And so often in the water conversation, agriculture in particular is villainized um, because of its intensive water use. And yet uh, again, the picture is not so simple.
5: Right. Yeah, we eat. Um, it's definitely true that the eighty percent of the water in the Colorado Basin goes to agriculture. Denver, uh, the the head of Denver Water estimated to me that Denver uses maybe two percent of the water in Colorado. Mm-hmm. So when people, you know, look at look at ways to save, it inevitably the focus falls on agriculture. And yet, you know, if if you eat your greens during the winter, you're eating uh, lettuce and onions and other fruits and vegetables that come from almost inevitably from farmland that's irrigated with Colorado River water from from Southern California, from northern Mexico. It's all a big web of interrelationships Uh, and then communities that depend on those. The people who are growing those crops, it's not just us. Uh, eating or not eating our salad. It's, uh, It's all these other relationships
0: among different communities in different states. Thanks so much for sharing your reporting with us. Oh, thank you. David Owen of The New Yorker, author of Where the Water Goes, Life and Death Along the Colorado River. We spoke in 2017. The play Harvey premiered on Broadway in 1944, and audiences went gaga. It features a man named Elwood Dowd, whose best friend is a large rabbit. The catch is, no one but Elwood can see the rabbit. Harvey became a feature film starring Jimmy Stewart. Here's Stewart's character talking about what happens when he and Harvey go to bars and meet new people.
5: They sit with us, they drink with us,
6: they talk to us they tell about the big terrible things they've done and the big wonderful things they'll do their hopes and their regrets their loves and their hates all very large because nobody ever brings anything small into a bar and then i introduce them to harvey and he's bigger and grander than anything they offer me. And and when they leave, they leave impressed.
0: The playwright, Mary Chase, won a Pulitzer Prize for Harvey. She was a lifelong Denverite, grew up in a working-class Irish family. And there's a new biography of Chase, who died in 1981. It's called, Pulling Harvey Out of Her Hat. Author Mimi Pacross joins my colleague Andrea Dukakis. Mimi, welcome to the show.
3: Thank you for having me. Mary Chase uh, had modest beginnings. She grew up in the Baker neighborhood in Denver. Was there any hint as a child that she was going to become a writer? She was a reader.
7: Uh, at a very early age, she had uh, she read a Tale of Two Cities," which she was very proud of later in the in the jacket. It talked about how she read it at the age of eight. Um, she probably wasn't geared that way, although she when she discovered the theater at the age of eleven, she said later that she thought she was going to be a playwright. So there was probably something in the back of her mind.
3: And at first, she, like her husband, was a reporter for the Rocky Mountain News, and among other things, she was a society reporter. What was it like to cover Denver Society back in the 1920s?
7: Well, there was one famous woman um, who had come from the South. Her name was Louise Sneed Hill, and she ran the city in terms she came here and she thought that the society... Uh, was not glamorous enough. And she spent her entire life uh, making sure that there were society balls and visiting opera singers and uh, all kinds of events and galas. And Mary was a reporter, and she covered those,
3: uh, those balls. Um, royalty, uh, she, she saw it all. It was almost like they were trying to replicate high society in Denver, and they were a little insecure that it wasn't here yet. And uh, so they were working at trying to make it that way.
7: Oh, totally. Um, uh, Louise Sneed Hill often went. She traveled all over the world. She was spent a lot of time in New York where... Uh, The Astors and the Vanderbilts lived, and the room of 400 was very well known. She created her own Sacred uh, 36 in Denver, which is uh, uh, personified in unsinkable Molly Brown when uh, Molly Brown is not allowed in. She made it very exclusive. Uh, uh, Clothes were very important. Um, She loved the whole aura of high society.
3: Now, she eventually left the Rocky Mountain News and turned to writing full-time. She was also a housewife and mother. How did she balance those roles at a time when many women were expected to be at home with kids and do housework?
7: Well, sometimes she ignored it all. <laughs> the housework. <laughs> she annoyed, as Sometimes she ignored her children, too. There's a story that goes that they buried all her silver in the backyard while she was writing Harvey. Um, <laughs> But she was actually kind of organized. Uh, She had nannies. Um, One woman uh, was from the juvenile delinquent home, and she hired her out. She always seemed to be able to organize it. Um, Her husband filled in sometimes not with the laundry or the cooking, but he uh, oversaw the childcare. She made sure that she uh, was able to take advantage of her opportunities no matter what. She went to New York five weeks after she had her third child, and she just gave her, asked her family to help her out. Uh, She was very
3: ingenious. We're talking about Mary Chase, a playwright uh, from Denver who won a Pulitzer Prize back in 1945. Um, So before Harvey, uh, Chase had another play on Broadway that was panned by reviewers. I think it was called Me Third. What did they say about it? On Broadway
7: or in Denver, it was first in Meathor. It was first in Denver, and everybody loved it. Uh, It was produced during the Federal Theater Project of the 30s, uh, Roosevelt's New Deal. Uh, Then it went to Broadway, and the critics thought it was um, uh, trite and overworked and nothing new. Um, The audiences thought it was great. They laughed and thought it was wonderful, but. It was a humiliating defeat, and uh, the the show closed quickly after it opened. So
3: then came Harvey. Uh, The plot is very unique. Tell us a bit more about what it was about. Well,
7: uh, she had a dream. Uh, She wanted to cheer up a neighbor across the street from her who had lost her son in, in the war. And this was right in the height of the war. It was 1942. And so she... dreamed about a psychiatrist chasing a six-foot-tall rabbit, and that turned into the play Harvey. Um, It's about escaping um, from reality, and it's about uh, who is the one who's crazy. Is it Harvey, or is it the people around her? And so she really poked fun at all of them, sort of in a light and fluffy way, not in a, a way where she pointed the finger at anybody. But um, her, Elwood has this six-foot friend, uh, Harvey, and he goes everywhere with him. And Vita, his sister, wants to get rid of Harvey because it's, in, it's getting in the way of her daughter's um, marital aspirations. And so she tries everything she can, and finally she decides to commit him. And then it becomes a question of who should be committed. Um, And it all works in the the end. Um, It's not a spoiler. Everybody knows the movie, or pretty much everybody knows the movie. Maybe not young people, but. Why was it
3: so attractive to audiences?
7: Well, I think that at the time, at least the critics say, that it was a way to escape all of the sadness that was going on in World War II. This was a really, really tough time for everybody. Either you had a son who was uh, serving in the war or you were deprived or you, because of, of the war you had to watch your pennies. You, you, It was a time when everybody was looking for escape. But I also think that everybody enjoyed... The players, the actors, Frank Fay and um, Josephine Hall, who were wonderful in their parts. And it was just a lovely, fun escape evening.
3: I understand Jimmy Stewart said it was among his favorite roles to play. What did he say about uh, playing Elwood? He,
7: oh, I'm trying to remember exactly what he said. It was always his favorite role. And um, I think think he felt that um, it was it was the human aspect of it, the human kindness, the message that we're all we all should be nice to each other. Um, and I think he played that role so many times. He substituted on Broadway, He played it in London, he played it on television. He loved it because of the, I think the aspect of, of the human human element.
3: Now, as we said, Mary Chase won a Pulitzer Prize in drama uh, for Harvey. That was in 1945, and I understand she had some stiff competition. Who else was in the running?
7: Well, it's hard to believe, but it was Tennessee Williams for the Glass Menagerie, and it remains a controversy today. People couldn't believe that um, a fluffy play like Harvey could um, beat out the the intensity of De- Tennessee Williams' play.
3: Now, while many people know about the play and the movie Harvey, Mary Chase isn't exactly a household name in Colorado uh, or even Denver. Why wasn't she better known? Well, she was at the time that this all happened. The
7: newspapers covered it constantly. She was overwhelmed by the press. Um, her children, in fact... Um, where she had to sort of watch over them because they were um, uh, one time I think somebody said, oh, your mother didn't write that play, and if she did, it was horrible. Uh, There was a tremendous amount of publicity at the time that she um, achieved what she achieved. But then through the years, even though she had other achievements along the way, people start to forget Um, If they're not reminded regularly with a statue or with a a series or with a revival of the play. Uh, And I think that you have to keep reminding people this is a wonderful, this is somebody we should be really proud of. (laughs)
3: Just to wrap up, Chase and her husband struggled with money a lot early on, but their wealth grew as her place sold, and the two moved into a wealthy neighborhood in Denver on Circle Drive. The house is still there. What was her life like after she started having the success she did?
7: Well, the, the house is called the house that Harvey built, even though she was the second owner, uh, and it became her, uh, her center. Uh, they traveled for a while, and, uh, but most of the time uh, they entertained all kinds of people from all walks of life. Uh, she continued to write. Uh, she had a rich life. Mimi, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. My mm-hmm. pleasure.
0: Mimi Pacras is the author of Pulling Harvey Out of Her Hat about Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright Mary Chase, who lived in Denver. Pacras spoke with my colleague Andrea Dukakis. By the way, production is underway on a documentary about Chase's life. The pandemic forced film festivals across the state either to cancel or to go virtual. But they're starting to come back. CPR arts and culture reporter Monica Castillo tells us about two very different festivals opening this weekend.
6: Movie theaters have reopened across the state, and now even a few local film festivals are welcoming guests back in person. That's the case for the long-running Boulder International Film Festival and the Yuray International Film Festival, which launched during the pandemic in 2020. We
1: were able to have 40 people our first year. Colorado has loosened its occupancy guidelines. Our festival this year will look a lot more like a normal festival.
6: That's Jared LaCroix, one of the organizers behind the URA International Film Festival. He says he and his fellow co-founders wanted to bring a celebration of film to the town and that it came together in just a year.
1: We just started brainstorming about how can we get a festival in this beautiful town and we were all on board and we talked with the Opera House. So we kind of transitioned from a filmmaking team into a film festival team.
6: Most of the festival screenings and events will take place at the historic Wright Opera House. The pace of the festival schedule is more leisurely than most, with only one feature film a day, a mix of shorts, and events in between. URA's co-founder, Jacob Abel, says the organizers designed the festival to create a space for thoughtful conversations inspired by the movies they screen. You know, we
1: often say that our kind of mission statement is that we want to bring the best of international cinema to the San Juan Mountains, and then we want to bring the San Juan Mountains to the best filmmakers in the world.
6: Over on the Front Range, Kathy Beek is getting ready for this year's edition of the Boulder International Film Festival. She co-founded the event with her sister Robin 17 years ago, and they're excited to bring the festival back in person to Boulderites.
8: We believe in the power of film to change the world. And we certainly saw that at some of the festivals we attended. It's like if you were in a library reading a book and the author stepped out in front of you and you could ask them questions.
6: The Boulder International Film Festival added the historic Chautauqua Auditorium for this year's edition. Movies will also play at the Century 16 Boulder and Boulder High School. The school's soccer field will host nightly outdoor screenings. Beek says there is no shortage of filmmakers interested in coming to Boulder to screen their movies.
8: When we reached out, so many people said, you know, what? You, you want to show in person? Yes, I want my film screened. And when do I leave? So uh, we just had an overwhelming response. And we have more industry, filmmakers, and even film subjects coming this year than we've ever had before.
6: I saw Emma on TV, and I remember just like looking up to her and thinking, wow, I can do that. A free screening of the film Us Kids is especially meaningful to Beek. The documentary follows the young students who survived the Parkland shooting in Florida in 2018. Beak hopes the screening and special guest speakers, including a Parkland shooting survivor, will help residents of Boulder heal after the community experienced its own shooting tragedy earlier this year.
8: We're still in that healing process from from our event in March, and we wanted to offer it free to, to the whole community. It's impossible to do something like put closure on something like that. We'll never have closure for that. But, you know, I still feel like this community needs to heal.
6: In addition to movies, visitors can also check out extra festival events. At Your Race Festival, guests can watch screenwriter James V. Hart giving a masterclass and Brian Foster reading from his book on race. Boulder's festival will feature a day-long community fair and concert outside a Chautauqua auditorium on Saturday. There will also be a handful of post-screening discussions with filmmakers throughout the festival. Beek says it's good to get back to some normalcy.
8: It's been a busy time, but I can't tell you how excited we are to have all these great people coming in from these films and to have the selection that we do this year is so exciting.
6: If you're not ready to trek out to a theater, both festivals will feature a virtual selection of their titles, available to screen through their website. Otherwise, these organizers look forward to seeing you in person. I'm Monica Castillo,
0: CPR News. Denver Pride Fest is also this weekend. The annual parade will still be virtual, though, to prevent large gatherings. During Pride Month, LGBTQ artists are in the spotlight over at our sister station, Indy1023. And that includes Wheelchair Sports Camp. The Denver hip-hop band is fronted by MC Kalen Heffernan. A brittle bone disease means she's three feet tall and gets around in a wheelchair. When Heffernan was a candidate for Denver mayor in 2019, she liked to say she was rolling, not running, for office. Wheelchair Sports Camp recently released Yes, I'm a Mess. As you're about to hear, this track could have been written during the pandemic, but it's actually from four years ago when Heffernan had depression and anxiety.
2: Rise and shine you made it. The Country with the munchies wasted all my wishes on you every shoe
0: star i see's got me wondering is this meant to hear? Denver hip hop band wheelchair sports camp with their new single yes i'm a mess watch the music video and read an interview with Kaylin Heffernan uh, by our colleague Anna Campbell at denverite.com thanks so much for joining us and thanks to the Colorado Matters team Carl
5: Bielek
3: Ali Budner, Anthony Cotton,
0: Andrea Dukakis, Michelle Fulcher. Matt hers Michael Hughes,
3: Carla Jimenez,
8: Avery Lil,
0: Pedro Lumbrano,
8: Patrice Mondragon,
0: Shane Ramsey, and I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. It's
2: so hard on you.